Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. But it's been a little bit, so I want to quickly brush through Ecclesiastes to where we're at now because it is kind of a philosophical book and it works its way through a series of worldviews and thoughts and it comes to the conclusion in these last three chapters of a godly wisdom and where we should be if we're kind of living in that kind of mindset. Solomon does not assume, or the teacher, but it's written a lot like Ecclesiastes, so in my humble opinion, it's pretty much Solomon writing that, so I'll say that, but it's clearly a point of debate because he calls himself the teacher. Um, he, uh, he does not assume that you believe in God to work through this philosophy. He, everything in Ecclesiastes is what we see under the sun, what we can deduce with our own thinking, and it still leads us to a point of God, which I think is pretty amazing. So in chapter 1, he says you can pursue intelligence, degrees, scholarship, finish high school, all that sort of thing. And his claim with the pursuit of intellect is that it comes with a lot of hard work and you don't get joy from it. Chapter 2, he says you can pursue pleasure. The problem with pursuing pleasure is it often comes to harm, regret, and it's kind of futile. There's no purpose to it. Chapter 2, he also says you can live for your hard work. You can be Mr. or Mrs. Home Depot, but you toil endlessly and you eventually just get cynical. You've done all this hard work and other people don't appreciate it. Chapter 3, fatalism. Nothing matters. Let's just forget about it and who cares? The problem is you have a conscience and God's put eternity in our hearts. So there's a conflict in your soul that comes up. Chapter 4 talks about sloth. The problem with sloth is you end up hungry. The problem with friends and popularity in chapter 4 is that it doesn't go anywhere and humans will fail you. Even our own spouses sometimes fall short of what we think our spouse should be. Chapter 5 talks about religion. You can be a holy religious person, go to church every Sunday, sing on the worship team, serve in the children's ministry, and at the end of the day, if it's not in your heart or you're just pretending to be religious, it's a foolish pursuit. And even worse, Solomon says it can be dangerous. You could actually anger God by pretending to be holy. Chapter 5 and 6 talks about money. Okay, I'm just going to live for cash. Let's make a lot of money, rake it in. Problem with extreme wealth is it sometimes leads to depression. It also is just living for wealth, which is empty. It doesn't make you happier. Chapter 7 and 8, he presents a worldly wisdom, which sounds like the Proverbs, but if you look at them carefully, they're not the Proverbs. They're worldly wisdom, and they're actually the opposite of what God calls us to in the New Testament. Chapter 9, he comes to another kind of wisdom, which I'm going to call a balanced wisdom, which is the, well, let's just be even keel. We won't get too excited on one side. We won't get too depressed on the other. We'll just kind of sidle our way through life. The problem with that is that the law condemns us, and it's also a path that leads to death. Jesus says, don't be lukewarm, be either hot or cold. So that balanced wisdom of just not getting too excited, farmer's wisdom, uh, is not necessarily a path that leads to life. So in 9, 10, 9, chapter 9, verse 10, he comes to kind of a conclusion. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. In other words, we're all going to die. Let's just work hard while we're here. And that's a conclusion you can come to without a faith in Christ. And it's, it's a logical conclusion to all these other paths that lead to dead ends. Ultimately, this is pretty close to living in the Lord's will. It's not a big leap to say, I'm just going to live in the Lord's will and be content in that. And do what the Lord has me to do. Chapter 10 then, 10, 11, and 12, he's going to kind of come there. Chapter 10, he addresses this 
living in kind of hope mentality, that living in hope is better than living in the death of where you're headed. And even without God, even if God didn't exist, hoping in a God is more rational than not hoping in a God. Right? Why would you hope in nothing when you can hope in something? So in chapter 10, he goes to this. What do we do with people in our life that still are living according to any, any of these other worldviews? And he calls them fools. How do we deal with fools? And we have fools that work for us. We have fools that work with us. And we have fools that are our bosses. And Solomon's going to deal with each of those kind of in reverse order. How do you deal with these people in your life? And, you know, to be blunt, we're trying to live for hope. It's a rational, wise way to live. And yet we deal with people that don't live that way. And we have to kind of put up with that. And I love this chapter because it writes itself. I didn't have to think through, like, how do we apply this to our life? Solomon's saying, here's how you think about these situations, and he gets through it. Chapter 11, then, he's going to talk about perseverance in that worldview. And then in chapter 12, he comes to a grand conclusion, which is hoping in God is better than this balanced kind of, this holy wisdom that we're getting to here. So that's the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm a big fan. Those of you who don't know me, I'm a complete geek. And I'm not the normal preacher. Pastor Mike's off in California today. He's uh, visiting uh, Lynn's mom. And we would want to pray that they're safe and that they're blessed doing that. Um, and I'm just a person who loves studying the Bible. So welcome to our Bible study this morning. This is how we kind of dig into it. Um, and we'll go there. Um, so let's start. Uh, this Chapter 10 kind of has six points that Solomon makes. The first point's in the first four verses. So I'm going to read all four to start us off. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment, and it causes it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly or foolishness to one who is respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he's a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your post. For conciliation pacifies great offenses. In summary, these four verses, there are foolish people in leadership. And they're gonna kinda, and we're going to encounter those people. Because in, unless you're God, you're under someone else's leadership. <coughs> Wise men can end up in these situations. And the first verse talks about flies in the ointment. Of course, you know, he's looking for a metaphor. To, to, you can have a beautiful perfume, but when you find a dead fly in it, it's, it, it ruins the flavor of the perfume. I think of this like chicken lo mein, and if you eat at any given uh, place that makes chicken lo mein, it's just a matter of time before you find something in your food that's not good. So the first time that happened to me was my favorite Chinese restaurant, and I'm eating the chicken lo mein, and there's actually a fly in the lo mein, which kind of ends the meal, right? You're just done, and you wonder if there's why you ate what you ate before you saw it, and if you're going to get sick and that sort of thing. even makes me a little nauseous thinking about it. And I think that's the kind of image that, that Solomon's trying to give us here. When you find something nasty in your life, it stinks. And it makes you a little bit like, oh, wow, how did I get that far into it? It gives off a foul odor. And it's the same thing with our leaders. When you have to have a boss or a leader or someone that you serve under that is doing something foolish, it stinks. It bothers us. It keeps us awake at night. We have to deal with that. Um, I think of like Saul's jealousy, right? Here's this God-anointed king of Israel, and Saul gets jealous of a little harpy boy, you know, and David's playing his little songs, and Saul gets jealous of that and starts throwing spears at him. It's just unbecoming of a king to get into a conflict with a musician kid. It's just not a pretty thing when that happens. I, of course, being an old guy, remember when Clinton played the saxophone 
on night TV when he was running for office, and I just thought, yeah, neither here and there in Clinton, I don't know if you voted for him or not, but it was just kind of like, yeah, I don't need my president to be showing what a good saxophone player he is. Like, I want a little more dignity from my leaders. It just kind of soured things for me. I feel the same way about there's secret societies that rich and powerful people get in where they go off in the woods, like the Bohemian Grove group that Nixon and Reagan and Bush were all part of, where they go out in the woods and hang out with people and sing songs and tra-la-la around trees, or I don't know what they do, but I just think that's so silly. Why do people get in these positions of power and they do these kind of silly, dumb things that just make me lose respect? Like, why do you need that in your life? Folly in a wise person stinks like a fly in the ointment. Okay, thanks, Solomon. Appreciate that. A little folly to one who's respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, and a fool's heart is at his left. Now, my wife wanted me to point out this is not a critique of left-handed people. right? But to know that, we have to look a little bit into the Hebrew and what they're doing there. Um, throughout the Bible, over 100 times, the right hand is used to symbolize something. And it's not that right-handed people are better than left. It's that that was the position that people would sit in if they were the hand of the king. So when you sit at the right of the head of the table, that meant that this was the person who could speak for you while you're occupied with other things. So and they even use that in fantasy novels. They talk about the hand of the king. And it's someone that has the voice to speak for the king when the king is absent and have that authority. In Mark 16, 19, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's not that Jesus is right-handed. That's that he's taking a position of authority that says he speaks for God and when God's occupied or not speaking directly to us. That's a wonderful thing. Also, the Olympics are going on, right? So another positional term that we use is first place, second place, third place. And if you notice when they put them on the podium, first place is here, and to the right hand is second place, and to the left hand is third place. And so part of that is the positioning of things or authority. So a wise man's heart it is at, at his right hand. To further understand this passage and get our own culture out of the way, right here um, is better interpreted, I think, as correct or righteousness or the right way to do things. So we use that word in that context. So when you say that a wise man's heart is at his right hand, it's like saying a wise man's heart is in the right way of doing things. It's the righteous way to do things, right? Heart is also a confusing word in this kind of sentence. Biblically, the heart is the source of a person. In our culture, the heart is the source of our emotions, right? So when we hear this is your heart, it's like leading from the heart, and that's not at all what this verse is talking about, right? They're talking about the heart being an emotional thought or an intention of a human being. In other words, you do what you intend to do, right? So in Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, the heart is interpreted as an intellectual and a spiritual function. It has both in biblical context. I'll give you examples of this. The heart actually does thinking for us. It's our intelligence in, math, in Matthew 9, 4 and in Mark 2, 8. In Psalm 77, 5, 6 and Luke 2, 19, the heart remembers, it reflects, and it meditates. So the heart is not just an emotional kind of instinct part of us. It's the thing of us that meditates and thinks about decisions before we make them. Solomon's knowledge of flora and fauna, so his academic side, is bragged about in 1 Kings 4.29. And, and it's described as the breadth of his heart. His intelligence was wide-reaching. He knew a lot about a lot. 
Matthew 6, 19, it says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The thing you think about is the thing you are, right? So another way to interpret this kind of line, and I know I'm spending some time on it, but if we wanted to really pull out the Hebrew here, I think a better way to interpret that verse would be a wise man's righteous intentions, thought, and intelligence is placed in a position of control and authority in their life. The heart is at the right hand, right? So the question for us then is, is our heart in the right place? Steph, uh, my wife, <laughs> she was talking about when she was a kid because we're, we're touring houses right now, and there's this one house that had writing all over the walls. The kids had kind of written on every wall in the house. And we were just thinking, man, how does that happen? And Steph told the story about when she was a kid, and she started writing on the walls, and then her mom caught her doing it, and she got in a ton of trouble. And the thing is, when she got in trouble, she knew what she was doing was wrong. But her heart, her head, she didn't think before she did it. She just did it before she thought. And then as soon as she got caught, the thinking starts to happen, and she's like, oh, dang, I'm in trouble over this. So she got spanked by her mom, got yelled at. She's in tears. Then her dad got home. He spanked her. She was in tears. And then he brought out a bucket of warm, soapy water and said, start cleaning. And the part of the story that she wanted to point out, and she's telling us, she goes, I spent an hour trying, because crayon does not come off walls very easy, and I was bawling the whole time because I knew what I did was wrong. Wise people don't do the wrong thing because they think before they do it. <laughs> this is part of growing up too, right? I used to work with middle schoolers. They'd do this stuff all the time that just make you laugh. Like, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Like, why did you climb on top of the bus? Like, really? What were you thinking? And the amazing part is we still have a lot of middle teachers that will corner that middle school kid and they'll say that. What were you thinking? And the middle school kid, it, it's inevitable. Their answer is, I don't know. And the reality is they weren't. That was the problem, is that they weren't thinking. The right question is, why weren't you thinking before you did stuff? So how embarrassing is that when we have adult, grown people doing the same thing? They react before they think. They speak before they think. They take action before they think. And it just makes them foolish. It's a fly in the ointment. So think before you speak. Put your heart in the right place. All right, we're getting into other stuff. i got to tell you when I prepped this sermon... <laughs> I felt like I was hearing the sermon, like God was talking to me. So I don't want to do this and try to say this is how we all should be. I'm wrestling with this stuff. This is hard to do. I don't wrestle with the party lifestyle in chapter 2. Like, they can have it. I don't struggle with that anymore. But this stuff, as believers, this is how we should act. And everything in my flesh rejects some of this stuff. I really got to pray to God and say, Lord, help me to think before I speak. Help me to be gracious with my words. It's not natural for me. My instinct is to... Get in there with it. So it gets worse in chapter 3, for me at least. When a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. He shows everyone that he's a fool. Fools can actually pretend that they're wise for a period of time. Some fools can even get up on a Sunday and start teaching about foolishness and wisdom and pretend that they're super wise and then go on with the rest of my week and do stupid stuff all week. And I'll confess that happens all the time for me. I'm still trying to follow this. I hope you all are too. I think this is why sometimes churches ask people to come and just be faithful for a while. We got new people kind of hanging out with us today. People have been here for a few weeks. And sometimes you get people that come into a church and like day one, they're like, I want to be involved. What do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And a lot of times I've seen Calvary pastors that just say, why don't you just come and be blessed for a year? Just enjoy the sermon, enjoy the music, just come and be blessed. What an amazing thought that we do that. There's some reason here too. 
Sometimes you get people that come into church and they're foolish people, but they pretend that they're wise and holy. But if you know somebody for a few months, that goes away. Eventually the, the guards come down. You get to see who they really are. You get to see how they really think, and, you detect, and that's where you kind of see where people are at growth-wise. It's hard to really see because fools will walk in the way of wisdom, but eventually everyone can see that they're a fool, right? And it, being a fool is not bad. It just means we've got to keep growing up. I think we're all fools, right? So to categorize it in some sense, we have to recognize we're all in that place. I'm going to go back a few times to Matthew, where uh, the Sermon on the Mount especially, and kind of compare that to what Solomon's saying here, and I think there's some really neat carryovers. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 7, but you may want to just keep a finger there if you're flipping around in your Bible. And I'm going to start on verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You know them by their fruits. Men, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thereby, for by their thr- fr- fruits you will know them. People can show up in our church and, and not be here for the right reasons. They're not here to serve the Lord. They're here to serve themselves. But we've got to get to know people before we see that. Eventually what's in the heart comes out the mouth. And we can control our tongue for so long, but eventually when we get comfortable, we don't. You get to see what a fool I am just by knowing me for a while. Together at the last point, it doesn't take long to figure out where somebody's heart is. All we have to do is wait, love them, care for them. And you get to see where people are at. I think there's a servant's mentality in that too. I look at One of the things I admire about my wife is when she talks to people, she's a lot more mature than I am in this. She just loves them. And when she gets into conversations with people, she just wants to know who they are and where they're coming from and what they're all about. And she kind of, she's not here so I can really talk about her. Um, she comes across really quiet. But when she, when she meets people, she gets to know them a lot faster than I do because she really wants to know more about them. She puts herself to the side and has this servant's heart towards the people she hangs out with. And that can be put offish to some, and to some it just endears them to her. For me, I wanted to marry her. So I love that. So lesson one, keep our actions sweet. Keep the flies out of the ointment. Lesson two, keep our heart in the right place. Right? Keep our head and our heart leading our lives. Lesson three, watch people and be patient. Don't just walk into relationships quickly or fast. Get to know people first and do that. This is all advice. I think Solomon's kind of coming to these conclusions where it's how to live our lives and to do it with some wisdom. Verse four, if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your post. Conciliation pacifies great offenses. Wow, I don't like this verse. So convicting. I'll break it down in a few ways. First of all, the idea of conciliation, especially in our culture, this is against everything we teach kids from kindergarten up. To give way to other people and not fight them, that seems really anti who I want to be. Every time I'm in a conflict with a person, I want to push my will on that person. I think that's the core of what Jesus calls trespassing. Lord, help me not to trespass. Help me to forgive the people that trespass on me. But anytime my will, somewhere I want to push it on other people, I'm trespassing on what God's put in my life versus what God's put in theirs. I have to be really careful about this because so much of me wants to kind of fight against this. But I'll give you a couple images. One is I, I thought of like anytime you see those military movies and they got the boot camp scene. And what they're doing in boot camps, and you'll see the sergeant kind of get within two inches of that private's face and start screaming things at him. Blah, 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 blah. 
And what they're trying to do is train that soldier to stand their ground. Stay at your post. And it doesn't matter if somebody's in your face and two inches from you. You stand your ground and you say, sir, yes, sir. Right? Does that mean we should just not think anymore? What is conciliation and what does that mean? And I would venture to say as we look at some other kind of passages, and I'm going to jump to 1 Peter here in a second, conciliation is not to be silent, right? So our job, our service in those situations where we have a ruler above us that maybe is even foolish, it's to tell them the information they need to hear if they happen to be going down a wrong path. But if they want to go down the wrong path, we've done our part. We've still hold our ground. It's not necessarily to keep arguing with them about what they're going to do or not do. That's super hard to do. Standing your post does not mean falling asleep on the job. It doesn't mean working half-heartedly or being disgruntled. It means staying there and being attentive, right? Standing your post is a military concept. Stand your guard. Watch out for the bad guys. Do your thing. Don't let your fellow soldiers down by not standing your guard and being a good, good watch person. Another image, a second image of this conciliation attitude. We see it throughout the Bible when you have eyes to see it, right? Joseph was a conciliatory leader. There's no situation in the life of Joseph where he wasn't serving somebody. And that's hard for us because we want to be the boss, right? But he tried to serve his brothers by telling them his dreams. His brothers didn't like what they heard. But it wasn't weak of Joseph to say that. It actually took a lot of courage. In the jail cell, he's telling his jailer about his dreams and serving that jailer and trying to give them some good advice. Some of them didn't want to hear that advice and got angry with Joseph, but he stood his ground. He stayed his post. He served his boss and the people around him. Under Potiphar, he does the same thing. Gets into trouble where Potiphar's wife is trying to, you know, with Joseph, and he has to actually kind of run away from that situation. But with everything he had as he could, he was trying to serve Potiphar. And even the conflict with his wife was an act of service to his boss. He's trying to stand his post. Then again under Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't a Jewish believer. Joseph was serving under someone who worshipped other gods. Completely different worldview. But Joseph did his best to serve that kingdom because it's where God put him today. That's a tough thing to put in contrast with Jesus saying, if they don't accept you, wipe the dust off your feet and walk away. But there's a flip side to that coin where if God's put you there, do your job and stop thinking that you deserve more than where you're at. This is where God's put you. Do it with gratefulness and faithfulness. That's a hard message for me to hear. Ecclesiastes 9.10 in the last chapter, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. This is where God's put you. Do it well. Do it with your whole heart. That's hard when you have a foolish person as your boss. It's hard to do it when you're working for somebody and you disagree what their religion is or where they're coming from. But how many times do we hear Christians just being the annoying person? Because we can't shut up sometimes and we can't listen and we can't serve in the way we could. God asks husbands and wives to submit to one another. How much conflict in our society we see over that concept. We're not here to submit to one another. We're here to hold our own ground and be our own boss. That's not standing your post. Standing your post is an act of service. It's painful to stand your post for a four-hour shift. But you stand your post. Sometimes you serve people and do that. I think it's all over the place. I think David's heart towards um, the king was to serve him. Right? He had a chance to kill him, and all he did is cut a piece off his robe because he just wanted to show him, I know you hate me, and you're trying to kill me, but I'm just here to serve you. You're my king. I love you. How much more strength does that take than to fight someone or to just take the shots when you can? 
the other side of conciliation, I know I'm spending some time on this, but it really, I was really wrestling with this, is it pacifies people. People are angry and they're yelling in your face and you just say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'll take care of that. I'm here to serve you. It really takes the anger out of people that don't know why they don't like you. And you just say, I'm happy to help. I'll do it. I, t I try to tell my boss, in this sense, I think I'm doing okay. I try to tell my boss, I'm here to make you look good. And if you're going the wrong way, I'm going to make you look good while you go the wrong way. And I'm going to trust that you will redirect us if you can. If your bosses are really that foolish, that company wouldn't exist anymore. We'll get to that in a sec. I like how Char Charles Spurgeon puts this. He uses the illustration in a sermon of this idea of, as believers, we don't have to push our belief. We just have to let it be, let people see it. He says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you do is set that lion loose, and it defends itself. Just be a believer. You don't have to push your belief on other people and, sh and push into their territory. They see who you are and see the strength you have to stand your ground in the face of someone who hates you. People come to Christ. So watch the growth of the church in societies that oppress the church. We stand our ground. We keep our post. We do it with a happy heart. You can kill me if you want to. I'm going to stand my post. I don't think that's weak as our society wants to frame that. I think that's amazing supernatural strength. Mind your heart. Keep our actions sweet. Keep your head about you. Watch people patiently. Stand and serve. How do we deal with foolish people in our life? Chapter 5 goes to a thing. I like how Solomon does this. He just lays this on the table. doesn't give us a lot of advice, but he's trying to help us change our heart a little bit. What about these bad people that need to hear it? I mean, there's bad people in the United States promoting ideas that are just not biblical, right? And you can take your issue, whatever hot-button news issue it is, there's a lot going on right now in our society where laws are getting passed that just don't agree with the Word of God. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, verse 5, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in lowly places. I've seen servants on horses, and princes walk around on, like servants. It is not fair what we have in our world. We have foolish people leading us, and we have wise people that are in service positions that aren't even being listened to. There's errors proceeding from the mouth of our leaders, both parties. This isn't a political discussion. This is an entire country going in a foolish direction. And we live here. So what do we do? I think it's interesting Solomon doesn't give us any comfort. He doesn't try to console us with this. He just lays the truth on the table and says, deal with it, reader. It's not an accident that he does that. If you look at chapter 7 and the way in which Solomon deals with this kind of similar issue, kind of points this out in 7. In 7, he's talking us through the philosophy, but here he does not. I don't think that's an accident. He's a very precise writer, and he's thought through what he's doing here. He's trying to get us to just absorb this. Like in the Psalms, they use the word selah, just soak that in a little bit. Soak it in. There's foolish people that are your bosses. There's foolish people that you work with. Absorb that. Then he goes on to verse 8. Gives us some consolation here a little bit. Fools can get theirs. That's how I would summarize this. Eight, he who digs a pit falls into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones might be hurt by them. He who splits wood might be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge... Then he has to use more strength, but wisdom brings success. In faith in God, we don't have to try very hard. We don't have to push very hard. Things just happen well in the life of a believer sometimes. Sometimes we go through struggles. But wisdom actually helps life go easier. 
I'll go through the traps piece here. The traps is a reference to bandits. One of the ways prior to guns and stickups, if you wanted to be a bandit in the ancient world, you would dig a pit, and then anything coming through that road, if you dug the pit in the right spot, you'd cover it up and conceal it, and the horses don't see that. They fall right into the pit, and then your whole caravan gets stopped by that front wagon, and then the bandits come out with their little swords and steal things. He who digs a pit can fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall, breaking through a wall was another form of theft. Remember, houses were built into walls in these ancient cities. So if you really wanted to break into somebody's house, you'd have to, you could just dig through the wall at night and kind of cut through there. And sometimes snakes lived in the walls, a lot like sod houses in early Minnesota settling, right? So both of these are references to thieves, bad people, and sometimes they get hurt by their own stuff. Verse 10 um, says that sometimes we can too. All right, I'll admit, have you ever seen like YouTube channels and you watch one and then you just keep watching the next and you can't stop? Our family got hooked on like thieves that did really dumb things. <laughs> and we just started watching these YouTube clips and one of our favorites, we were belly laughing over this and we just kept watching it, was this thief that tried to go through like a gas station convenience store, was climbing up in the ceiling and then the ceiling collapses so he falls down and falls in the aisle. It looks painful. That's part of the humor. And then the decision of this person was not very wise, right? He tries to get back up into the vent system by climbing on these like cereal box shelves. And you can see the shelves just starting to bend as he does it. And this is the great thing for me. All of a sudden you're thinking, this isn't, no, this is not going to go well. But the thinking just wasn't there. And this guy's working so hard at what he's doing. But eventually the whole thing just goes boom and the whole store falls over like dominoes. And he's again in this thing and he gets caught. <laughs> I think it's funny. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, he has to use more strength. Literally, this guy wasn't the sharpest tool in the box, right? Matthew 7, 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, we've done wonders in your name? And then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. Just another spin on that verse. Lord, I'm working so hard. I've done everything you wanted me to do. I, I have to get into heaven. Let me in. The Lord's like, I don't, it's not about how hard you work. It's not about how much you labor. It's that you are lawless. You're stealing from people. You're robbing people. You're thinking of your own territory over other people's territory. The danger of fools working is that they can be careless. Another danger of fools working is that they try too hard. For those of you that have chopped lumber, that idea of the dull axe is kind of, should sign, signify something to you. Um, if you've chopped lumber, you want an amazingly sharp axe because one swing goes right through the wood. When you get a dull axe, you have to start pushing a little harder and a little harder and a little harder, and that strength becomes dangerous because you miss that piece of wood or the dull axe bounces off the wood and you're hitting your ankle with it. And a dull axe can hurt. And that's the thing with foolish people. You almost feel sorry for them. When I was a grad student, I was on a project, and this guy came onto it, and he came in, and he was all, I'm a hard worker, I work hard, you know, put on the, the mantle of wisdom. And my first impression was, whoa, cool, hard worker. But as I got to know this guy working with him, he, he did work hard, but he was kind of not bright either. He did the wrong stuff a lot. He did it the wrong way, and then he'd have to go back and redo it. And then he'd get angry and come up with defensive excuses why he did stuff the wrong way. 
well, so-and-so did it this way. We didn't ask you to look at so-and-so's work. We asked for this. And he kept doing it. So every time he did things, it wasn't that he didn't work hard. It's that he just worked dumb. And you almost feel sorry for the guy, except for the fact that then he would make things up about other people, and he would blame people, and he would lie about people and hurt their reputations. And he'd often go after people that were wise and say, well, the reason why they're doing this, 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 and this is because of this, 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 and this, and just fabricate things. And we caught him in a couple of these lies. He wasn't happy with us when we caught him in these lies because now it was on us. A dull axe can hurt. So when foolish people are doing this stuff, the closer you get to them while they're chopping wood, get your ankles out of the way. So Solomon's wisdom here is that these people can work really hard. They're going to fall into their own pits, and they're going to get butt by snakes when they dig through those walls. They will hurt themselves, and they're going to work really hard doing it. Get yourself out of the way too. That dull axe can come around and hit us. I think that's wise. Solomon's saying here that those that plot and plan and work hard in the workplace or in the family, they're trying to get angles on people and all this sort of thing, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed because their natural work isn't smart or wise. The competence not there. Stay out of the way of those people. They can hurt too. He actually says that in verse 11. A serpent can bite when it's not charmed. So if you point out the fact that they're not working well or smart, they'll often bite you. That's wisdom too. The babbler's no different. You ever run into people that just run their mouths all the time? They don't think before they speak? That can bite you too. A gossip in the, you meet, well, even here in the church, you run into a gossip, people are talking about others in a negative way. Why would you think they're not talking about you in that way when they go to somebody else? Love people. Love them with your word, with your mouth. Let your thoughts be adjusted. Problem is in our head, every time we meet somebody, they're not doing life the way we think they should do life. That's just the truth of it. Because we're doing life the way we think we should do it, and anybody who's different than us, we point fingers. We build walls. Verse 12, the words of the wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool shall swallow him up. You can be wise, blessed, inspired, and when you're getting into it with a fool, they don't even care what you're saying. All I can think of is like Facebook forums, right? Put up something kind of amazing or holy, and you always get those people that are like, Jesus is stupid. And they kind of put that in there. And all you want to do is write back. I've had times where I've written the whole thing, and then I'm like, don't get into it with the babbler. They're just going to turn around and bite you. They're not looking for peace and grace in their life. Stand your post. Do it with intelligence. Be smart about it. Don't get into it with these people. They're just going to swallow you up. Verse 13, the words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. They start with foolishness. They're going to end with foolishness. Their heart's not in the right place. Verse 14, a fool multiplies their words. No man knows what's going on with what they're saying. Who can tell what comes after him? It's rhetorical. No one can because they're not speaking reason. From the start, as Paul says in Romans, from the beginning, they're fools. So what makes you think that your intelligent speech is going to change that foolishness? It won't. Your actions, your faith in God, your peacefulness with where you stand, that's going to change people's hearts. The labor of fools wearies them, for they don't even know how to go to the city. <laughs> I like It's another the dull axe thing, right? They, they work really hard because they don't even know where they're going. If there's no God and there's no direction in life, then you're working really hard in circles. I feel sorry for you at some level, and I don't want to get too close to you because I don't want to get bit by that. right? There's no purpose or direction. Keep your post. Be gracious. Even if a fool swallows it up, let them wear themselves out. Let them have their big discussion. One of the things that amazes me, if you've met Pat Johnson, is how quickly he gets to know people. 
I mean, seriously, what, he came here like a week and a week later, everybody knows him? How does he do that? I'm totally envious. That's a gift. It's a blessing. And part of it is, and I even asked him, we were at the men's retreat, and I'm just like, Pat, I don't get it. How do you get to know, how do you, he had this guy just pouring out his soul to him, and he hadn't even known this guy an hour ago. I'm like, how do you go from there to there? Like, clearly you've learned something in life. And here's his advice. He said, all I do is listen. If people want to talk, I just let them talk. And I don't ever give advice unless they ask me for it, right? I just listen. I just hear where people are at. And people sometimes will talk for two, three hours to get it all off their heart. And then at the very end, they're like, what do you think? Because you don't share your heart with people without having them say, what do you think, right? But he goes, the temptation is to constantly respond, constantly say, well, I think this, and I do that, and I do this. But at that point, you're not really bringing in a believer. All you're doing is creating an argument. Do you argue with somebody? Do you want to see them the next day? Somebody tells you you're a fool, do you really want to deal with that person ever again? So every time you do that, you're basically pushing away one more person you could have brought into the kingdom. I know that's convicting. It is for me. I'm saying you, but I'm talking to myself. I'm going to summarize a lot of this so far. The application is people can say whatever they want. Let them babble away. At some level, the argument can bite you if you get into it with them, so be gracious. Let them talk themselves into raving madness. Let them multiply their words. Nobody can tell what they're going to say next. Let them say what they're going to say. Don't engage with that. Let them wear themselves out because their words are ultimately a dead end and they're vanity. And we've seen that in chapters 1 through 9. It's all a dead end. Let them have whatever philosophy they want to have. They can figure out that it's a dead end, but it might take time. And what they need is somebody who wants to hear them when they come to that place where they're ready to turn. That's counterintuitive for us. I'm going to go to Matthew because I had to keep processing this a little bit. Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 21. You heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, you shall, whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. It's one of the commandments. I don't have a problem with that. I don't wrestle with thinking somebody should be dead. Some of you might, but I don't. But I say to you that whoever is angry with their brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is a swear word, shall be in danger of, 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 of the council. All right. That's without cause. But what if I have cause? And this is the verses we don't often get to in the church. Matthew, or in Matthew, it keeps going. There's two more points that he makes in the same thread. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Maybe I have just cause to call them a fool. Maybe they're being foolish. But if I say that, I'm in danger of hellfire. So should I not say anything? Should I just let foolishness abound? How do I stand my post in the face of that? You ever met somebody where they just talk, 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 and you're listening, and at some point you're just like, I disagree with you. Here's where I stand. But can you do that without judging? And you can say, you know, I just love the Lord Jesus. I'm glad you're wrestling with all this stuff. That's awesome. I feel for you. But I just love the Lord Jesus. That's as simple as it gets for me. And I don't need three hours to say it. See, even the three hours to say it's a little snarky. I can kind of get that out of my tone, too. You know, it's just kind of the, I just love the Lord. It's that simple. What about open theism, closedism, Arminianism, Neo-Calvinism, Lutheranism? What about this and that? And how many angels stand on the head of the pen? I just love the Lord. I don't know. I read the Bible, I try to do what it says. I don't have those same problems and issues you're wrestling with because I just try to love the Lord, right? That's standing your post. It's keeping your ground. You're not giving up. It's not an act of weakness. 
Whoever says you fool is in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring the gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you've gotten an argument with somebody, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. Be reconciled to your brother first and then come and offer your gift. If you've got somebody in your life you've been arguing with, you're bitter about, it doesn't say whether or not they're Christians. Go make it right. Be the bigger person and ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to argue with you. You were trying to tell me how you thought about the world. I should have been listening. I'm really sorry. It still keeps going. Verse 25, we don't like to hear this one. Agree with your adversary quickly. While you're on the way with them, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, unless they're a serpent and they bite you. Right? Just agree with them. You know, doesn't mean I have to feel that way about my life. It's like I can hear what you're saying and your worldview is sounds like it's true to you. You pursue it. An old pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor that I like, the guy in Madison, Jeff Solald, he used to just say to his kid, Hey, if you want to go live for the world, do it 100%. Go live for the world. You want to party, you want to do all that, just do it, but don't do it halfway. Do it all in so that you can see after a year or two how empty it is. If Solomon's right in chapters 1 through 9 that all is vanity, then let those people pursue their vanity and come to that conclusion themselves so they can come back to you and say, you're the only person in my life that said go for it, it's a dead end. You were the one speaking truth into my life, and I'm now back to hear what you got to say. I think that's a good place to be. Assuredly, verse 26 in Matthew, assuredly I say to you, it will by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. You get into it with a fool, you're going to pay for it. Every last penny. You're going to lose that connection. But then I wrestle with that a little bit too. Because in 1 Peter it says, be always ready to give an answer to every person that asks. Right? Always be ready to defend your faith. So I went back and looked that one up too. Let's read it really carefully. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It doesn't say always be ready to fight. It says this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Start by just getting right with God. You need to work it out with God before you deal with anybody else. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asks. You are reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and with fear or a conciliatory thing. Let me serve you with my worldview because it serves me really well. I have a hope in Jesus Christ. I'm not here to push that on you, but it works for me and it's not whatever you're, if you're asking me what I think, I'm going to tell you. But in your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord is holy. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for your reason and the hope that's in you. In other words, if they're not asking, keep focusing on the Lord and making yourself holy and perfect before him so that you can live blameless in that sense. Ask forgiveness for your sins. Deal with your own stuff. People are watching. When you come back and ask for forgiveness, they see you doing that. It's a powerful thing when you do that. I've wronged you. I spoke in turn. I got snarky with you, and I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. I want to respect you and help you get where you're going in life. Nothing more powerful to an ungodly boss or an ungodly spouse when you just say, how can I get you go where you're, how can I help you look good? What do I got to do to do that? I try to do that with my bosses. In this sense, I'm really trying to play this out. Where I just tell my boss when they're frustrated or angry, it's just like, I'm here, you pay me, I'm here to do whatever it takes to make you look awesome. How can I serve you? How can I be a good foot soldier? Right? And that, in the face of an angry boss, is really pacifying. Right? Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way, lest they deliver you to the judge. Verse 16, back to Ecclesiastes. Woe to you, O lands. Now we're dealing with an entire country, right? Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, 
and your prince's feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and your prince's feast at the proper time, for strength and not for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness the building decays, and through idleness of hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Clearly, Solomon is not saying money is awesome, because remember back earlier, he did a whole chapter where he basically said money is vain, it's pointless. He's not saying that. But he does have, there's four different contrasts here. The first one is he contrasts a child with a son of nobles in verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 16 is the child, verse 17 is the son of nobles. Basically, he's, bas- he's saying that there, we can have leaders in our world that are childlike and they're foolish. A son of nobles implies that they've been trained and raised in the way to lead and how to do things. It's a really good thing if you have a good boss that's wise and they're trained and they know what they're doing. It's really difficult when you're dealing with a child and you kind of know they're going down the wrong path, right? Another contrast is feasting in the morning versus the proper time. And if you think about this image just for a second, it kind of speaks for itself. If you know somebody who's in leadership and they get up in the morning and just party all day, they're the jet set crowd, the kids of rich people just wasting their time and money, it's kind of aggravating. Or you've got a boss who's lazy and you don't feel like they're working very hard, that's aggravating too, versus feasting at the proper time, which is the end of the day. With my son Grant, we're wrestling with this right now, and, and he told me I could, well, I'd, I told him I was going to say this, and he said, okay. Um, but when he gets up in the morning, he just wants to sleep and rest and take an hour-long breakfast and whatever, and we're trying to coach him like, you know, as a wise person, get up and do your work first. Don't feast and have your celebration time at the beginning of the day. Do it when you're done with the work God's given you for the day. Then you can feast at the proper time, which is to celebrate a good day of work, that you've done your thing. And if you have more work to do, do your work. You don't have time to do that. How much more aggravating is that when our leaders don't feast at the proper time? They don't celebrate after the work is done. They celebrate beforehand. Um, Laziness and idleness leads to houses leaking. We all know that. We have houses today. You let things go too long. They're there. But why is it with rich people they just pay people to fix it? They don't really suffer for laziness because they have tons of money, right? But the rest of us working stiffs, we suffer if we're too lazy. That's unjust. Again, Solomon's just putting it in there. That's a reality of the world. It was there when Solomon wrote this. It's there today. Dead flies will putrefy the ointment and gives a foul odor. It's not a good thing when these things happen, and he recognizes this is evil. But does that mean we react to it and we fight it and we get in the face of those people? No, you're just going to incur their wrath. The serpent's going to bite you. The dull axe will hit you in the ankle. All those things happen. So keep your post. Folly's everywhere. Folly can bite you, even if you're trying to do the right thing. You need to be gracious in the face of that. Work hard and work smart. Keep your post. It starts to come together, right? Matthew 7, 24. I think of leaky roofs and I think of houses. And the New Testament references houses too, right? You all know this verse. Therefore, whoever hears these, things of my, these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken them to a wise man who built their house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and the roof didn't leak. Uh, it doesn't say it. Close, but it didn't fall, for it was founded on the rock. I think it's amazing that with wisdom comes a firm foundation that Our houses might leak, but we do the work we take care of, and that part of wisdom is a good work ethic. You put those things together. So he comes to a conclusion in verse 20 back in Ecclesiastes. Don't curse the king, even in your thought, even if they're foolish, even if they're feasting at the wrong time, even if they're 
wrecking the business. Like the house is leaking. They don't even see it. They're just throwing money at things. They're being foolish with their decisions. Don't curse them, even in your thoughts. Don't curse the rich, even in your bedroom. Bedrooms are where we sleep. I'll come back to that. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, a bird in flight might tell the matter. So here's one last point in chapter 10. I think of this idea of just cursing people in your bedroom, right? This is when you're trying to go to bed at night and you're just angry with people in your life. You ever have that? Had a bad argument or a discussion during the day with a coworker, a boss, somebody who works for you, your kids, your wife, or your husband. You're in those situations where you go to bed at night, all you can do is replay that conversation again and again and again. What if I said this? What if I said that? And it keeps you awake at night. Well, who's hurting from that? You are. You're the one staying awake at night. The command here is don't do that. Don't curse people when you go to bed and sit there and think. And basically, there's three options. You can sit and run that conversation all night and get up the next day and be more ornery and more tired and more likely to be in that situation again tomorrow. Or you can just curse them. I mean, that's biblical too, right? Curse these people. And there's such a thing as just cursing people and then saying, I'm going to curse them and give it to the Lord. But here's the third option. Pray to the Lord that he takes it out of your heart altogether. Don't even think it. Don't even let that be there. Because that replaying of the conversation is a form of sin and it's a prison. Because we're not supposed to do it. The command's right there. So when we do that to ourselves and we start doing that, we're building walls between us and other people. The alternative, and I wrestle with this all the time, I'll be in, the, in bed kind of doing this and then I'll just stop and say, Lord, this is a prison. I can't get myself out of it. I can't stop thinking about it. You've got to take the shackles off, Lord, because in my flesh, all I can do is think about it. I'm stuck. It's a prison. Sin's a prison. Lord, take it away. Take the prison away. And then I'll be praying that. And then I'll go right back to the conversation in my head. And then I'll stop myself again and go, Lord, I see what just happened, Lord? I can't stop. And just help me out. And then I'll wake up in the morning and realize it just disappeared. Lord, help me go to sleep. So when we're in that mode where we're cursing for it, Solomon just says, don't do it. I would only add to that, I don't think we have the ability not to do it. I think it's part of our flesh. We curse people all the time. No matter who we meet, there's something about them we don't like. We get irritated with people, right? You just ask my wife. She gets irritated with me all the time. Thank God she's a godly person. She forgives me. I have annoying habits, right? But to just think about other people and to be cursing them and, and thinking about that and blessing them, it's not where our heads should be. Our heads should be blessing other people. Listen to what we see back in Matthew, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute it. It doesn't matter how evil they are or how bad they are or how much they're persecuting you or how much they're coming at you. The strength of the Christian is to bless them and say, I'm here to help you. I know you're angry at me right now. I want to do whatever it takes to help you thrive in your position. After reading some of this, changed how, changed how I dealt with that other grad student that I was dealing with. He was so mad. He was doing this stuff. He's changing out. It's, I'm just here to help you, brother. What do you want me to do to make you look better? Can I help you get that done? Do you want some practice with that so you're working a little more efficiently? I want to help you. Like when he's mad at me and he's thinking those cursy thoughts at night, that totally puts that on its head when the person comes back and says, I'm just here to help you. I know we've had some conflict, but I, I don't want the conflict. I just want to be helpful. What can I do? Well, that breaks down the same walls that our flesh wants to build up with other people. Here's another one. And Solomon says back in chapter 9, 
These kinds of people, these holy people, they're one in a thousand. It's not that Solomon didn't know other Jews and people trying to live according to the law. It's that when we get to this point in our life, you're one in a thousand. I'd say you're one in a million, right? To find somebody that just does this, it's crazy. And the fruit in their life is incredible because everybody says, I want to be more like you. But so many of us as believers, we're so busy cursing people and getting into conflicts with people and thinking we're right and they're foolish that we don't actually build the relationship. Verse 13 in Matthew again, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's easy to do this destructive stuff in our life, even as believers. There's many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few who find it. You can love the Lord. You can be religious, but Solomon already dealt with religious stuff. But to find this path, this path of forgiveness and grace and love for people that are in our face. So when that military sergeant's three feet from your nose to just stand your post and say, Sergeant, I'm here to make you, I'm here to help the mission of this troop. What do I need to do? If I've screwed up, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. I'll do it right. Then in your heart you're thinking, but this is stupid. But you've got to get rid of that too. Lord, take that away. Just let me serve. It's the same way that we should serve our God. Yes, Lord, I'll do what you're asking me to do. And to get in that place where you're just a servant's heart and you're just going to do that, it's not a weak position to come from. Okay, I've got to do a Lord of the Rings reference. Lord of the Rings, you've got these little hobbit people they're trying to save the world being these nice kind little people and there's wise wizard Gandalf that travels with them well there's this scene where they're sitting there and they're talking about this truly evil little creature called Gollum right this foolish person that's gone in the way of sin they're consumed by it and Frodo the hobbit says it's a pity Bilbo his relative didn't kill him when he had the chance kill Gollum it's a pity we didn't just take care of that evil when we saw it and I love Gandalf's response. It really speaks to me. And Tolkien was a believer. He pulled this right out of the Bible. It was pity that stayed his hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Don't be too eager to deal out death and punishment and judgment. Every, even the very wise can't see the ends of things. That person you're angry with could be the next great American evangelist. That person you're angry with could be the person that builds a relationship with your lost family member that needs to find Jesus, and they're the ones that bring them to Jesus. Every person we curse in our heart and in our head, we're thinking we're God, that we know more than God does about where their life is going. So that's the conviction for me. i got to get rid of that. It's, not my jo- it's my job to judge sin and evil in my own life. With brothers and sisters in the faith, if I see you sinning, other places in the Bible say that amongst the wise, we should be admonishing each other and rebuking each other to be more holy, right? But with the fools, we're supposed to be gracious and loving and let God be the judge. If they're really doing something stupid, they're going to get their own hand bitten. If they're really doing something dumb, they're going to learn that it's dumb, and they're going to figure it out. It doesn't help if we just come in and point that out to them. It just creates an enemy. And our job should be to be gaining and bringing people to us. That's hard when we want to argue. I'm going to read this again. I say to you, love your enemies. This is Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. God can take away all that hate that's in our hearts. Even at the low level where we're just irritated with somebody, he can just remove that and take it away. On my good days, I can feel the Lord doing that to me. On my bad days, I'm going to bed going, Lord, forgive me. I screwed up again. 
but it's this lifetime journey of getting to be more and more like Christ, which is a really hard journey. Keep your post. Folly is everywhere you look. You're going to see it. Folly can bite us as believers. Be gracious towards those people. Labor smart and work hard. Forgive in your heart. Don't even think. And we're going to be getting closer to Jesus. As a body of brothers and sisters, if we're doing that together, we're going to grow closer to Jesus and we'll see the fruit of what the kingdom can do. And to me, that's exciting. All this in the book of Ecclesiastes. See, we started Ecclesiastes. It sounded really depressing, right? All's vain. It's all worthless. And you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, and he's like, but this is a godly path. This is the way to go. And Jesus comes back and is saying the same thing as he's doing his teaching and preaching. And it blew all the Jewish people away, all the the Pharisees and Sadducees. They couldn't make this connection. But Solomon was making it years ago in Ecclesiastes. They should have read the word, and they should have seen what's here. And in some sense, even if you're wrestling with your faith and you don't know where you're at with that sort of thing, this is wisdom that supersedes that. It's just smart playing in the workplace, in our families, where we're at. There's no ground that we stand on that if God hasn't called us there is worth fighting for. The next question, of course, if you're a logical thinker and you're with Solomon on this, won't you get tired doing all this conciliation? Won't you get wore out forgiving people? But remember what Jesus says when his disciples ask that question? Oh, okay, Lord, how many times do you want us to forgive people? And he says 70 times 7, which is 490. One of the kids told me that. <laughs> Essentially, Jesus is saying, just keep doing it. It's not your position to stop doing that. That's God's position to do that. Just keep doing it. So the next chapter, when we get to chapter 11, this could be like in three months, when we get to chapter 11 in Ecclesiastes, the whole chapter is about how to stay vigilant in this and how to keep going when we're exhausted and tired living this kind of holy wisdom out, right? And then in chapter 12, it's like the climactic ending of a great movie. Chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes is live for God. It's all there is. Be holy. And he comes to it from this very rational, worldly perspective. And the end of all reason is living for God is better than anything else we have. So figure that out. I can't wait to get to chapter 11 and 12. I'd do it now, but we all got to get home at some point and eat some lunch. So if you could just pray with me, we'll wait for 11 until later. Dear Lord and King, we just love you. We love your word. Lord, I can't believe how much truth is here. It's a miracle that we can come to conclusions through reason and our head, and the Bible helps us to come to these conclusions through our heart and through our spirit. Lord, you show us in multiple ways because you will tarry so that none will be lost. You want all of us to come into the truth and grace and love of your kingdom. Thank you. We don't deserve that. Lord, our hearts are stirring. We want to fight the fools in our lives. We want to combat. We want to argue, Lord. And it is really hard for me to hear, for us to hear the message, Lord, that we need to be people of peace and grace. We need to ask forgiveness. Lord, there's a strength there that I don't have in my flesh. Take away my flesh, Lord, and help me to be more like you. Help me, Lord, to just love the people around me, not to critique them. Help me, Lord, to see the plank in my own eye before I look at the sliver in other people. Lord, help me with my boss. Help me with my coworkers. Help me with those who work for me, Lord. Help me with my family, extended family, too. And help me to just love those people and help them get closer to you by pursuing their goals, even if they're foolish ones, Lord. Help me to just love them and know that their path can lead to you if they do it wholeheartedly. Teach me. Teach us. 
Help us to be people of your kingdom, that everywhere we go, we, people see people that stand their ground, stand their post, that serve to the best of our abilities and work with a good heart. Help us to be grateful for the territory we have and help us to not trespass on other people's territory. And help us to forgive those that trespass against us. Lord, help us to just take what you've given us this week, tomorrow, today, and be joyful in the gifts you've given us and to be grateful. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.